You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Well, we're going to carry on now with the next part of our series. And our Bible reading for today is Acts chapter 23. Sam's going to be reading from 12 to the end of chapter, and I'll be reading chapter 24. Thank you, Sam. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, from verse 12 of chapter 23. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. 
Then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Terralus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all the charges that we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence." It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that is enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it is um, what gives us a perfect and good understanding of who you are. 
how you love us, how you care for us, how it is alive and helps us in our hearts to come to know you, to engage with you and find truth and purpose and meaning and joy and happiness to the fullest in you. And we do pray that as we look through this passage, as we see Paul's character and his godliness, would it help us to lean on you all the more? So in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, let me start with this question for you. What have you done today to make yourself happy? What have you done today to be a little bit happier? Some of you might go, ooh, I had that nice morning pastry. It was really good, so buttery, beautiful. That, that was it. Or maybe some of you go, I really go to a coffee shop, a good flat white made from sustainable sources in a wonderful way with a wonderful little pattern in the fern. That, that's, that's what gets me really, really happy. Maybe, you know, it's amazing, actually, if you look a bit further. People will spend money on funny things that will make themselves happy. Um, my wife and I just went up to Newcastle a couple of weeks ago, and there's a cafe that do wonderful coffee, but they just realized that coffee makes a lot of people happy. Kittens make a lot of people happy as well. Why don't we merge the two together? And they call their, their, their cafe Cat Porcino. That's true, that's a real thing that exists, and I, um, I was ashamed to go inside of there. Maybe, in fact, you're thinking, ah, that would only be momentary. Maybe I want to do something a bit more long-term. Maybe I need to give up sugar, or go long-distance running, or maybe only eat certain types of foods that will just make me really happy and healthy and really help me. If you're interested in that stuff and you want to be healthy and walk stuff along as well, maybe even make a, make a big event and bring some of your friends around, the next time you're thinking about a Hindu or, you know, um, an event that you want to do, why not take them alpaca walking as well? Because that's apparently something you can do to enjoy yourselves, be healthy, happy, a wonderful thing to enjoy as well. Maybe you want one a bit more local. Just two minutes walk from here in Manchester, if you wanna be healthy, wanna do something that will help you be happy, but also help you in the long term, maybe even help you be a bit more fitter and healthier, why not enjoy puppy yoga? For the price of 140 pounds a month, just two minutes down from here, or 35 pounds per session, you can enjoy wrestling a puppy whilst also doing yoga, and maybe, maybe that will give you some delight because that guy looks so happy. He is he's, he's well for it. It's, it, it. it's something you can check out later on. Uh, but it, it does suggest something, does it, to us? It's that people want to be happy all the time, and actually people will pay to do that. There's a market out there for that, but whatever ones we look at, they're all somewhat momentary. Even if you have that wonderful uh, pastry, even if you do have a month-long subscription to puppy yoga, um, when your class is over, there's the possibility that that stuff will fade, that you don't find yourself full of joy in those moments. How do we continue to be joyful in all situations? Or as Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, put it, one swallow does not make a summer, nor does one fine day make someone happy. One brief time of happiness does not make a person entirely happy. In fact, we know if we've lived for any period of time that life has wonderful happy moments, but lots and lots of pain, lots and lots of suffering, lots and lots of things that can feel difficult and painful. If we ask, what have you done to make yourself happy? Another flip to the other side would be, why would we keep going on? Because Woody Allen, um, the famous director, said, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over way too soon. Just a grim and really, really positive way of looking at things. It's, it's a bit tough, isn't it? Life can be both happy, but really rough. And what do we do with all of that stuff? Into that speaks Acts chapter 23 and 24, where Paul is somebody who has known happiness, 
deep, deep, wonderful joy, but here is facing constant streams of suffering and yet carries on. For the first few chapters, we've seen Paul in his ministry work plant churches and see things happen that have been wonderful, and now it slows down to follow his life as he goes through five trials, five public trials, and significant suffering, and in all that, you almost get a sight into what his devotion life was like, to what his time with God was like, and how he leans on him, and that gives him a purpose, a meaning, a joy that cannot be taken away from him in any situation. This will show us what it means to be happy, but to be in such a way that it can never be robbed from you in any situation. So that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to have three points. Paul sees that Jesus is in control, that Jesus cares, and that Jesus forgives. Paul sees Jesus is in control, that Jesus cares, and that Jesus forgives. Let's look at point number one. Jesus is in control. In chapter 23, 40 men have sworn an oath to kill Paul. They looks like a situation of certain death. They are swearing not to eat anything and they're going out of their way to make sure that he is going to be executed because of his faith in Jesus and how he's preaching the gospel. But it's wonderful how God's hand is right there through all of it, isn't it? That God is in control of the situation. And how is God in control of a situation? In the past, we've seen in other bits and acts how there have been wonderful miracles, how big things have happened. And you almost expect at this point, maybe God would pull back the fabric of a curtain of, of reality and just kind of squash one of those 40, flick another one of them, melt that one over there and destroy them all. That would be how God would save the day and how he'd fix everything. Jesus is in control after all, isn't he? But no, no, no. If you look in the passage, who is it who overhears the plot? A small nephew, a relation of Paul. And what does he do? He doesn't rip open his cord and go, I'm Superman, I'm going to save the day. He, he just tells Paul, who tells the centurion, who realizes that this is a problem, and so he has Paul moved to save the day. Do you see that? That the, the hand of God is always in control of everyone's lives, even Paul's life. And sometimes that was a big, wonderful, miraculous event. And sometimes it just looks ordinary. I mean, in this passage, that little boy, the nephew, is never named. He's probably a young boy. One of the reasons why it hints that he's a young boy is because when he goes and tells the centurion what's happening, he holds him by the hand and takes him down there to say, what's going on? Just as a side note, if one of the kids from Crash has a problem and wants to talk to me, I'll hold him by the hand and go, well, what's, what's the matter? If somebody from the youth does that, it's a bit weird if I do this. I'm not going to hold them by the hand and go down like that. It suggests that it's a small young boy, somebody who seems insignificant, and yet God uses that situation. Paul recognizes it as God being in control, working through all things, and so he responds. God works through what seems ordinary. That's one of the points that we can see in Jesus being in control. God also works through the structures of our lives. Do you see that in this passage? That Paul is saved because of the Roman rule because of the Romans' commitment to excellence. You're a citizen, Paul, of Rome, so we can't let you get murdered. We're gonna to have to take all of the gang, all of the army, and we're gonna take you out and take you over to Caesarea and make sure things are sorted. Do, do you see that? But, but it's actually in the structures of his day-to-day -day life that he's saved. Even though Rome was the oppressive nation over the Jews, even though Rome was the thing that seemed like a problem. So we, like Paul, think that God is in control of all things, would you, can I encourage you, if you believe that, 
Would you recognize that he works through the small, insignificant things in your life? Would you also recognize that he works through the structures that seem hard? You might think, oh my goodness, at work, they make it so hard for me to follow Jesus. Oh my goodness, it can feel so tough being in Manchester where people can respond in a different way when I share the gospel. And yet, if we believe God is who he says he is, if we believe that he's in control of all things and he works through everything, he can even work through structures that seem difficult as well. Last point in the one that, where it says that Jesus is in control. It's clear that the hand of God is working through all of these things. The last thing to say is that living as though God is in control is very hard. We just said it's a, this is like a behind the scenes sight at what it's like for Paul to follow in his devotion life, to follow God. You see and you read these wonderful passages in other parts of the Bible where he's written about God being in control. Like in Ephesians 1.11, he says, in him we are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There's that beautiful description of God being in control. And my hunch is, if you've been at City Church for a while, especially if you've heard our reform series, the idea that God is in control of everything, that God is sovereign, is something that's not new to you, but the idea of living as though that is true every single day is incredibly difficult, isn't it? To believe that God is working through the stuff that seems mundane, to believe that God is helping you in the middle of what feels like a momentary trial that you're facing at work or with your family or with other stuff that's going on, that God is in control and that God is helping you, that's a really, really difficult thing. And yet look what Paul does. He sees his nephew explain the problem, but he is in danger, that his life is in that balance. And he doesn't go, God, can you fix this? But immediately he responds to telling the Roman centurion, bringing the little boy along, and that brings them all the way across. God's hand is through Paul's life. God is in control of all things, and it's shown here, and Paul sees that it happens in the ordinary. Paul sees that it is in the structures that are there, and he lives as though it is true. Friends, if you call God your savior, do you believe that already? Second question, Jesus is in control. Jesus is also a God who cares. Paul gets taken from where he is to Caesarea to await a trial, and there, the Jews go along as well, the guys who are going to kill him. And they bring in and they employ a lawyer called Tertullus to argue their case. Tertullus, in chapter 24, verses 5 to 8, presents his case. And he starts by really, you know, currying favor, buttering up, sucking up to the judge Felix, the governor. And he says to Felix, you've caused us to have great stability and to make things work really, really well. Let me just tell you a little bit about Felix over here, who's the judge. Felix was a guy who was a hard-nosed, oppressive, strong-willed type of mobster. Think about like Gotham City and the bad people who rule that. That's kind of like Felix. He grew up as a slave, but actually became so strongly oppressive that Rome had to be like, no, 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 come back here, Felix, you need a time out. You, you, you've been a bit too oppressive over there. Do you, do you realize that? Rome had to pull him out and go, you need a time out, you need to calm down. Rome is the place where people get nailed on crosses and go, mess with us, this is what happens to you. Rome is the type of place where they set people on fire as torches. Rome is the type of place where later on, Christians will have, have their heads drilled in and molten lead poured in. And they go, Felix, you're, you're a bit too, come on, calm down, just come over here, calm, you're, you've gone a bit too much. The idea that this man presented stability is just crazy, it's not true. He is oppressive and damaging towards the Jews. But Tertullus goes, yeah, you've been great, 
You've been so helpful. You've, you, you've brought about all this wonderful stability for us. And now what I'm telling you is that this Paul, he's a plague. He's a troublemaker, verses five to eight. He's a heretical leader and someone who wants to desecrate the temple. Paul has just faced death threats, an attempt at his life. And now there's people who are from his own background sullying his name, lying and sucking up to the people who have caused great pain to his countrymen and his whole area around him. And how does Paul respond in verses 10 to 21? Well, he responds by, by first off, being very neutral, going about things in a really godly way. He says, it's great, Felix, that you are here and that I can present my case to you because you're very experienced. We see that in verse 10. He then talks about how he believes in the resurrection but it is the resurrection of Jesus and how he is orthodox. He is not a sect leader. He is not somebody who's gone off in a different way. He believes in the Old Testament and believes that it's perfectly fulfilled in Christ. He's also not a troublemaker because he's been on his own as he's worshiping in the temple. He's not trying to cause things to be rough or difficult. And lastly, he, show, he, he, he gets to the point of it. He says, actually, to prove anything, the reason why we disagree is because I believe that Christ has risen from the grave and that's the thing that they find really offensive. Now, this whole bit where Paul defends himself is brilliant. He, he, he's neutral. He puts points out there about the resurrection that separates the Pharisees from the Sadducees. He talks later on about the, the, the Asian Jews not being there and how they're not forming, following Roman law. But what I really want to ask in this point is not so much all the content that's going on, but how, how is Paul able to defend himself in those ways? Because it's an excellent defense, but how is he able to do that? Let me, let me put it this way. How is he able to respond with such courage and such trust? Because, I mean, you and I all know that we struggle when things get hard. On a week-to-week -week basis, I get the wonderful privilege of being able to pastor some of you and care for you. And when we talk, it's, this relationship is so bad in my life, it, I, I'm struggling to get out of bed. I had so much difficulty in my life as a kid and I was bullied so terribly. I was treated so poorly by family that it's just too much for me to be able to handle and to think about things going forwards. There are things in our lives, there are things that happen to us day to day, week to week, that just really impact us and make us think, I don't know how I carry on. And yet Paul here is able to keep pushing on. In fact, we talk about how damage can be so strong that it still affects us. There was a recent survey that looked in King's College London, it, it, it surveyed 771 kids um, from the ages of 7 to 11 when they faced bullying. And it noticed that 50 years later, many of them would still struggle. Many of them would still wake up thinking about, impacted by, having social anxiety, more likely to face depression because of the bullying that they had faced. Any negative impact on your life has a knock-on effect. It can really hurt you and harm you. Now, that's the case for bullying. And we can all agree bullying is difficult and hard, but can we all agree that whatever Paul's going through is something a little bit different? Let me just re-again list all the stuff that Paul's gone through. He's been beaten to within a pulp of his life with a cat and nine tails, which has ripped bits of his body off. And remember, that's before there was antiseptics or anything like that. So his back has probably not healed very well. It's a bit grim. Then he faces 40 people trying to kill him and wanting him dead. Then he finds himself falsely imprisoned. And when he's there, he's on trial. And these people are accusing him of all the things that are not true. How is it that this man 
doesn't go, you're all liars, please set me free, I've done nothing wrong, but rather be concerned about sharing the gospel to them and sharing the gospel to Felix. How is he able to respond in these ways? Would you turn with me just a page earlier in your Bible to chapter 23, verse 11. Let me read it for you. Paul is struggling and it says this. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome. It's a wonderful thing that we see in this passage, isn't it? It's really worth a hallelujah, yeah. It's, it, it's Paul going, I am struggling. And God goes near to him and gives him a personal promise. Do you see that? In other areas where Paul struggles, he gets a vision or a miracle. But here, the words in the Bible tell us that he stood near to Paul. And this is the thing, this is almost the key text that gets Paul handling the next five trials of his life. God stands near to Paul, gives him a personal promise, and he doesn't promise him happiness, he doesn't promise him comfort, he doesn't promise him perfection, he's just going, you're gonna carry on with your mission. It's probably gonna involve a lot more pain and suffering, actually, you're gonna go to Rome. That's what he's promised. But it's a sign that God cares. God knows when we are struggling. God knows when we are weak. God knows when things are tough, and he gives us personal promises to help us. At this point, you might respond and go, great, Eric, thanks for that. Wonderful that Paul gets a personal promise. Wonderful that Paul also knows that God is in control of all things. But Paul has seen great miracles from God. Paul has had Jesus show up to him and encounter him and tell him to become a Christian. Paul has got a personal promise there. I ain't got any of that stuff. So how do you expect me to handle the rough and difficult situations in my life? And yet, we do have something similar because around this time is when Paul is in jail. He's gonna be in prison for two years after this. And around this time is when he writes, most commentators believe Romans and Ephesians and stuff like that, that's there. And, and we get that wonderful promise in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who trust in him. All things, not some things, not the wonderful things that we celebrate, not our happy moments. God works all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That is a personal promise applied to our lives, which means when you're really, really happy, God is in that moment and he's working all those things. When you are struggling, God is in those moments and working through them. When you're just a bit numb and you're just like, yeah, life's a bit meh, God is still in those moments and working through them for you, which reminds us the truth that God is in control but that he cares about our situations. He has proven this to us by dying on the cross for us and showing his goodness to us. So they're the first two things that we see as we ask, how do we as Christians become happy? How do we as Christians be able to handle any situation? How do we as Christians become robust and flourish and know that God is with us in everything that's going on? Know that God is in control. Know that God is also one who cares. Well, that takes us to our last bit. Know that Jesus is also a God who forgives. The last ch chunk of this section from verses 17 onwards are where Felix hears Paul's claims. And Felix knows that these charges against him are trumped up, that they're not legit. But Felix just goes, you wait there and I'll wait for Lysias and then I'll rehear your trial. That's what Felix says, essentially. And 
and extra biblical literature, so the literature around that time, history, tells us that it's likely that Felix did that because he'd been so oppressive to the Jews, he was like, I can't let Paul free, they're gonna throw a riot if I do that. So you just stay there, and I know that you haven't done anything wrong, but you just, you're gonna have to stay in jail for a little while longer. And so he puts him in house arrest for two years. To be fair to Felix, he's not terrible, he goes, let's just make you comfortable, but you're gonna stay in house arrest for that period of time. And in that period of time, Felix would draw out Paul to hear the gospel with his wife, Drusilla. And he tells us that as he heard the gospel, he was very afraid and would send him away again. We talked a little bit about Felix. Let me tell you a little bit about Drusilla and the person that she was as well. Drusilla is described in extra biblical literature as a ravishing beauty. She is the type of person who would probably fit on the front pages of magazines, I'm giving my my age now, uh, cool blogs or stuff like that, things that you would see that are there. In fact, she is the daughter of Herod, the one that jails Peter. She is the niece of Herod Agrippa, the one who killed John the Baptist. And she is on her second marriage at this point. And Felix looks at her and goes, she is so beautiful. I'm so caught up in my lust. It's really weird. He gets a magician to seduce her and bring him to, her, to, 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 her, to him. And they end up together outside of marriage, outside of wedlock, and they're there. This is a couple that are really powerful, but let's face it, a little bit messy, a little bit all over the place. And Paul says to them, he shares the gospel, the importance of righteousness, the importance of self-control, and the importance of the judgment to come. Could you imagine that? That, that you've got an opportunity to plead your case before the judge who's, who's put you in prison, and he goes, I wanna hear from you, and you know the messiness of their life, and you're like, actually, I, I wanna talk to you about righteousness, that, that we are all sinful, that we do things wrong. I wanna talk to you about self-control, of how we should do good, but we do bad and we break the rules that are around us. And I want to talk to you about judgment and things to come that are going to affect you. And, and what does it tell us? It tells us that Felix was greatly troubled by that and greatly shook by it. Do you see that? Paul talks to them, sharing the gospel, being courageous. And in verse 25, they are hugely impacted by it, but not changed. Extra-biblical literature, history tells us very little about Felix after this point. It seems like he didn't become a Christian. Extra-biblical literature tells us, actually, that Drusilla continued to grow in age. She continued to remain a beauty. And then actually, later on in her life, she moved up to Italy. She took a son with her. And she's there partying, enjoying all the trappings in Pompeii, this beautiful city with wonderful food, wonderful stuff that's there. Maybe she's still thinking about the gospel and this thing that she'd heard about with Jesus every so often, but she was there in 79 AD as the historical event happens of Mount Vesuvius, where the volcano erupts, where hot ash spews out and destroys and kills all the people in those cities. She may well have been impacted by the gospel and thought about it lots and lots of times, in fact, maybe thought about for I've got plenty of time to keep thinking about this. But eventually, in fact, she got destroyed along with everybody else in Pompeii and it was too late for her. She was impacted by the gospel, but she was not changed by it. And now, according to everything that we can see, it's likely that Drusilla is somebody who will be judged by God 
judged as guilty and will face the wrath of God. That's not something we like to talk about much, is it? But it is important that we talk about it properly because in this room right now, there will be some of you, perhaps many of us, who are warmed by the gospel, warmed by Christian community, loving the way in which things really impact our hearts. But let me ask you, friend, are you really changed by it? Do you believe this, what Paul is saying? Do you believe that Jesus really died from the grave and rose again? If you say that you've believed in it and you've followed God for years, let me ask you, are you clinging on to Christ as though he is more important than anything else? Because we think that we've got loads of time, just like Felix and Drusilla. But all we know is that we are one day closer to seeing our God and King, one day closer to facing judgment for all that's going on. And I guess this would probably be the thing that we would finish with. How is Paul able to say, my conscience is clear, I'm not afraid to be judged by you. How is Paul able to talk about self-control, righteousness, and the judgment to come before his judge who's going to put him in house arrest for two years? I mean, wouldn't that be something to be really disappointed by? I know a lot of you are really excited about being involved in ministry or serving the Lord or even just serving in church over here. Could you imagine more of a depressing ministry than, than sharing the gospel to somebody for two years as, 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 and, and them just being like, no, nah, I'm good, I'm good. I'm good, actually, I'm, I'm not interested. And that's the only thing that you get to do. That, that seems to be what Paul is facing in this situation. How is he, again, still able to carry on, to be able to trust in God and see his goodness? Because he's already been judged. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, actually, that Paul is one who has faced judgment from God, but he knows that he is guilty. All of us are guilty. But actually, as he sees that he is full of guilt and shame, he sees that he has been forgiven and made right by Jesus. And in that one court, if he's declared right, it doesn't matter if the court of public opinion before another judge says that he isn't okay. It doesn't matter if other people sneer at him. It doesn't matter if 40 people want him dead. It doesn't matter if his whole nation is against him. He's able to respond to all of that because he knows first and foremost, he has been made right by God. He has been forgiven. See, both of them, Paul and Felix, have barriers to the gospel. Paul originally thought he was a great Pharisee and thought he was so godly and so wonderful, he didn't need Jesus. And Jesus confronted him and showed him his guilt, his shame, and why he needed to follow God and trust in him to receive forgiveness to the fullest. It's likely that Felix, being the type of guy that he is, thinks he's so sinful, such a bad guy, so dirty and rotten in the way that he's behaved and so oppressive that he can't receive the gospel. He's too bad to receive it. But here's the wonderful thing, isn't it, from all of it. We don't move past this point. We stick to the gospel, which is always that we are far worse than we could ever imagine. And yet, because of what Jesus has done, we are far more loved than we could ever hope. Do we see that again today, friends? Are we living as though we believe that? But Jesus forgives you and I are wretched, horrible. We are people who do mean and terrible things, but the Lord values us deeply. We are made in his image. And as he loves us more than we could possibly imagine, he has gone to the cross to die for us and to forgive us. How do we respond in our lives? How do we possibly continue to be happy and to have to carry on when, as Woody Allen says, all of life is in pain and suffering and it's over before you know it. Well, it's certainly to know first off that God is qualified to help us. He's in control of all things. It's also important that we know that he cares and he loves us. 
but that is perfectly demonstrated in how he has forgiven us at the cross, how he has changed us forever, and how therefore, no matter what we face, our consciences are clear and we can respond to him. That, that will make us happy throughout all of our lives, and that is something that cannot be taken from us no matter what happens. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we do thank you that you are not just a God who is powerful and in control. You are not just a God who has shown that he is worthy of our praise and able to care for us. You are a God who has given us life to the fullest, who is able to meet all of our needs. Lord, we are people who are self-centered and sometimes always want to be happy, yet you have made us to find our ultimate happiness, our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate joy in you. And we thank you that if we see what Christ has done, that he has died for us, he has judged us as wrong, but he has got into our situations and forgiven us and allowed us to be with you forever. Lord, would you help us to cling towards you and to respond with joy, knowing the goodness of what you have done. We do pray that that would be what would empower us throughout this entire week, throughout the rest of our lives. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.